Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Mandeep Singh's here. He's a senior analyst, covers all things technology for Bloomberg Intelligence, and there's a lot to get to. Let's first go to, to Intel. I'm looking at INTC Equity Go, and then I hit the FA function for financial analysis. I got revenue going from $75 billion last year to $65 billion this year. I got free cash flow going from $10 billion last year to negative $3.4 billion this year. What's going on with Intel? I thought this was the steady eddy of all technology stocks. No, I mean, look at the management changes they've had over the years. They brought back Pat Gelsinger, and the reason was Intel has been behind both in terms of chip manufacturing as well as chip design. Remember, they were the vertically integrated players. Moore's Law was really all about Moore's Law, which is like every something every year gets well, better. Well, right? I mean, basically, the trans you can pack more transistors okay. in a chip because of Moore's Law. And that Moore's Law pace is declining, but that should affect everyone. The problem with Intel is it's really trailed on the process node technology, the geometries that enable more transistors to fit in that chip. And that's where TSMC has really- Taiwan Semiconductor, okay. Taiwan Semiconductor. So Apple, NVIDIA, AMD, all the fabulous chip makers, they give their designs to TSMC, TSMC makes them, and that is why they're doing so well in terms of market share. Intel, on the other hand, is aye, losing aye. its relevance in CPUs because of process node, as well as you know the nature of computing is changing. Now we keep talking about more and more AI. AI is, do is done not just using CPUs, but also GPUs and other types of custom chips. So lots of problems. And Intel's announced some job cuts. Who cuts jobs in Silicon Valley? Well, it's <laughs> inevitable. This year, everybody. <laughs> yes, everybody. I think you make a great point, Matt. Uh, you will see that with big tech across the board and Intel more so because uh, clearly, something is not working in terms of you know their designs as well as manufacturing. And even though they bought a company, Tower Semi, that was a recent acquisition to you know scale up on the foundry side. I think they have a lot of inefficiencies in just how the companies run. So I wouldn't be surprised if you see 10 to 15 percent in fixed cost cuts, and we estimate that to be you know around two to three billion just in terms so of cost settings. I think one of the things that's hard for us, Mandeep, to wrap our heads around is. Over the last couple of years, um, no one could sell enough products to match demand because nobody had chips. And it didn't matter what segment you were in. If you're talking about cars, mobile phones, refrigerators, you didn't have enough chips so you couldn't meet demand. Demand was so high and your, uh, your, your production was too low because you couldn't access these things. Now this year, I look at the Sox uh, Philadelphia Semiconductor Index these guys who were the most in-demand product like in the world for the last two years, every single one of them is down. There's not one of the 30 semiconductor manufacturers on the Philadelphia index that's had a gain for the year. 
Why? Well, because this is a cyclical I sector. Was, you you go through boom say. and bust. And, you know, this time is no different. But it's like Se- it turned on a dime. It was boom and then bam, that's it was bust all invest. of a sudden. I, I, and that's where I think you have to go segment by segment. So uh, Qualcomm really is big on the mobile chip side. Apple does their own chips. But uh, on the PC side, it's Intel. On the AI side, it's NVIDIA. And then AMD to an extent as well, you know, they have diversified both on the uh, server side as well as the client PCs and gaming. So clearly- but all of know, those names, who, I'm just saying, who are the winner? Intel's down 51% year to date. NVIDIA's down 61% year to date. AMD is down 61% year to date. Who are the winners here? Who's up? Well, long-term, you know there will be more demand for AI and machine learning, these kind of workloads. And that's why NVIDIA still trades at a premium to AMD and everyone else in the group because they have the highest share over there. So if you go by that token, the market is already rewarding NVIDIA with a higher multiple. But clearly, expectations are coming down because we are in that glut situation that I mentioned. Our former colleague, Anand Srinivasan, he taught me like day one when I was asking about semis, this is a, this is a, this is not a place for, you know, the the faint of heart because these things move big and they move in these big cycles and you got to be in front of the cycle. You're going to get crushed. Look at memory. Yep. 30, 40%, uh, you know, down just because of the glut situation. It's a commodity at the end of the day. All right. So real quick on Intel, let's finish up Intel. It's a big name, you know, hundred billion dollar market cap. It's got a 5.8% dividend yield. I like that, but that's, is that at risk here when I look at a company with negative free cash flow? Absolutely. And I think the fact that they're talking about cutting costs, I mean, and, and obviously they were a beneficiary of the CHIPS Act. They are getting those government subsidies. If they continue with the dividend, I think there will be questions asked around why they are going out with such a big, you know, uh, cost cut. So clearly I do expect, you know, given the negative free cash flow, and it's not as if, you know, when semis come back, which again, semis is cyclical, things will come back. But then Intel's problems are more than, you know, the cyclical nature of this, uh, semi-cycle that we are witnessing. They're positioned poorly. Yes. So the dividend is at risk. I mean, that's the scariest part. I mean, think about like original, Silicon Valley Andy kind of Grove. companies. You think Intel, yeah. Santa Clara, California, um, some of the, you know, in the garage kind of thing. Uh, but, you know, as Mandeep suggests, you know, in a, a very bit clean garage, a spotless yeah. garage with sure. zero particles per million. <laughs> exactly. Mandeep Singh, senior analyst covering technology for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us live in our Bloomberg Intelligence studio. He does not mail it in, he comes in. We appreciate that. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Well, we got earnings kicking off uh, in earnest uh, Friday when the banks uh, kick us off here, and we'll have it for the next few weeks. But it really just feels like this market is really focused on one thing and one thing only, and that is the Federal Reserve. How high will the Fed take rates, and how quickly will they do that? Let's have a little roundtable discussion on that. We bring in Vince Signorella, global macro strategist with Bloomberg News, and Anna Wong, chief U.S. economist with Bloomberg Economics. Anna, let's start with you. You had 
and your economics team had a really bold call, I'm going to say a couple of months ago, and you said that you think the Fed fund rate uh, might go up to as high as 5% when I think the consensus was probably somewhere in a three, three plus range. It kind of feels like you're on the right side of that trade here. What is your call about how high uh, or how aggressive this Federal Reserve will be? Right. So um, the reason why we thought the terminal rate would be 5%, so the Fed will have to rate, uh, ra- uh, raise rates to 5% around in, in late spring next year. Uh, the reason is because we think that the Fed is um, very concerned about a potential wage price spiral. Um, and in their reaction function, they're, they are basically assuming a natural rate of unemployment, or some people call it NARU, uh, to, to be 4.4% rather than the, you know, before the pandemic, it's around 4%. And, and um, so if you make that assumption, then 5% would be the optimal monetary policy. So that's why we arrived at that number. And I do see risk that they could have, they might have to go higher than that. Um, if the neighbor really is more more around the ballpark of 5%, as Larry Summers is suggesting. All right, Vince, you've had access to Anna's research for months. <laughs> Where did you get it wrong? Where did I get it wrong? I don't think I got it wrong. Didn't you uh, think the Fed was going to turn around and, and start to cut? I mean, shouldn't we be no, no, at a no, point where they are cut. done think- now? I think the Fed may have one more in them, but I think that that's about the last one they're going to have in them. Um, we're closing in on a potential recession. The numbers don't look good. Uh, today's price uh, PPI numbers were really mixed, and, and the market right now is actually trading off the yield of 10-year gills, not really trading off U.S. inflation. When U.K. 10-year gills hit a 2008 high, uh, this market tanked, and I think people looked at that and thought, oh, well, we're reacting to the PPI numbers. That is not the case. Now we're seeing the Dow, um, Dow and the S&P in the green, and that's because U.K. 10-year gills are off 12 basis points from their highs. It's, it's about financial conditions and the risk that is what's wearing financial markets right now. And if the Fed were to raise to 5%, I think they would crush financial conditions and, and cause an all-out jailbreak on risk. And, and I don't see how they could, would, would be able to stay in higher rates in that scenario. I mean, this this started with Bailey, frankly, what I would say were irresponsible comments yesterday by basically saying to pension funds, uh, you got three days before we close the door on you. But they've known uh, that for weeks. Just, yeah, but I mean, you know, the, the, the hope in these financial markets is that they'll always give them more time if the situation persists. But you've got to have some spine, right, as a central banker. You've got to oh, have no. some backbone. You can't let the markets wag you around all day long. I mean, well, in the in the last 15 years, when have they had it? No, I think that's precisely what Jay Powell is trying to reinstate here. Um, They're going to raise rates until they break inflation and break the idea that there's a Fed put. And if you're on the wrong side of that trade, it's going to hurt. I think they're going to break a lot of other things before they break inflation. Very likely. It seems like they they know that as well. that's, That's part of the trade. Well, I don't see how that's a Fed mandate that they need to break everything just to get inflation down where it's most of the inflation is food and energy, and it's out of their control. I don't see how raising rates is going to lower the price of gasoline or lower the price of, of groceries. I mean, what? How? you know, Volcker did the same thing, and he's he's hailed as a hero these days, right? <laughs> completely, completely. He broke a lot. Went you know, the yeah. country went crazy. People were throwing bricks through the window of the Federal Reserve. He still did it, and he won. 
this is not the 1970s, trust me. Um, what led to the inflation of the 1970s was part, Mr. Burns, every time, every time a component of the CPI would go up, he would remove it from the CPI so the CPI number would remain tame. It's, I would argue that this is the difference between PCE and CPI. When, when Greenspan removed food and energy, and by moving over to core PCE instead of CPI, he did exactly the same thing. He took out the right. two components. That, that are essentially what are driving inflation right now and made things look tame for a long time so right. that they could stay soft. So, so Anna, Anna, do you share the concern that this Fed may go too far? Well, you know, I'm actually on the side that I think uh, Powell and and his colleagues might lose their nerves and could possibly <laughs> decide to to cut late in 2023 or 2024 if the recession is deep. Uh, keep in mind that during Volcker's era, Volcker did uh, change the monetary policy operation to allow, um, you know, instead of discretionary um, um, Fed funds rate targeting, he moves to reserve targeting. So actually, he he he, he took that really uh, that 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 decision of raising rates to twenty percent off his hand. It's not his doing. He he can claim to the politicians and you know Main Street back then. It's not not our fault because we we didn't raise it to twenty percent. It's this automatic you know algorithm working in the background. Whereas today. Power has to make the decision whether they have to keep raising. And if you look at the dot plot in September, you can see that in 2024, there's actually a dispersion of uh, views among FOMC members as to how much to cut. So, and and in their projections, they only have unemployment rate at, at worst to you know 4.4 to 4.6 percent. Right. So I think that if unemployment rate turns out to rise to like five or 5.5, yep. they might lose their nerve. Okay, we'll have to see. It's a we'll see if they can keep their nerve there. Great stuff, great roundtable. Uh, Vince Signorella, global macro strategist with Bloomberg News, and Anna Wong, chief U.S. economist with Bloomberg Economics. Matt, we've got a special guest in the studio. Yes, today. we now saw you, him on I TV. Saw, I saw you run over there, yeah, into the TV studio and grab him and bring him in here for radio. Well, this guy, you heard chief market economists. Um, or chief economist at banks, Gary Schilling was the first one. Yes. He started that, if I'm not uh, incorrect, um, after what? After Stanford? No, I I, I worked for Santa Rosa, New Jersey first. That was now uh, Exxon. Exxon Mobil. Yeah, Standard uh, Oil of New then, Jersey, and then went to Merrill Lynch. Ah, okay. So, but and, and again, after, it was Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner, and Smith. That's yes. how you did it back and in the day. And was Bean before. Is that right? Okay. Maryland's first one, Bean, and then Smith. Okay. Because Wynn Smith was sort of the modern founder of the firm. Okay. In any case, um, fast forward to the great financial crisis, and you were one of the big bears. One of the few people um, warning, as we were all so excited and buying five houses uh, fully <laughs> levered up and oh, yeah. thought the prices would never go down. You were one of the few people warning of that. What do you think now as we um, are entering another crisis of sorts, right? I mean, we had the pandemic, which was something completely different. Yeah. Um, then we, I guess, spent, printed and spent as much money as we could, and now we're gonna pay the price for that. We're gonna get the hangover for that party that we had. Right, well, we, we don't have anything huge like the uh, dot-com uh, nonsense of the late, of the late uh, yep, 1990s, early 2000s. And we certainly, in housing, you know, we've had a bubble in housing. You've had the flight 
from city apartments to the suburbs, rural areas with a pandemic and a big run in single-family housing, but it's, it just doesn't compare with the, with the uh, subprime mortgage uh, nonsense that we saw a decade ago. So, but it's, it's more a little of this, a little of that, and again, I think, that, I think the overall arching theme is there's just been too much money in the economy pumped out by the uh, Congress administration yep. in, re in response to the pandemic, and then, of course, the Fed. Just, I mean, you know, th their assets went from from four billion to nine billion in, in a matter of five years. I mean, a, a trillion, right? trillion, trillion, right? Trillion, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I, it's unbelievable. And of course, what the problem now is, the Fed is embarked on the uh, on a mission to get rid of that liquidity. Yep. Now, yep. how much are they going to get rid of? Uh, they're taking uh, 95. Their, their target is 95. Uh, a month, but just add that up and see how many years it would take to get to even get a trillion back. It, it's, uh, it's so. It's a, it's what do you think? And it, and it wasn't even five years, by the way. I'm looking at uh, if you type Fed Bal, yep. so F E D space B A L, go on the Bloomberg terminal. God, you can see their one I learned their balance sheet. We went from uh, in two years three point six trillion, let's say, to eight point five trillion. So in two years. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that, that, we added that two five years trillion was, was yeah. the biggest. Um, so <laughs> what does the Fed do? Now it seems that Powell is intent, and we were just talking about this with Vin Signorella and Anna Wong, intent on raising rates until he breaks inflation and doesn't care what else he breaks. Is that the right interpretation? The one thing he doesn't want to break and it's already bent is Fed credibility. I yep. think that's the whole, the whole secret to the Fed action. They were behind the curve. They clearly did not recognize that inflation was more than just supply chain disruptions, reopening the economy, uh, very ephemeral uh, features. And so they, uh, they, they really are playing catch up. And, and you know, Powell, is, is, he's made it clear. He's, he's in effect said, we're going to do this recession or no recession. And of course, he's also fighting the string of puts, the Greenspan put, the Bernanke mm -hmm. put, the, the uh, uh, Yellen put. And everybody thought there was going to be a power put. In other words, that the Fed would bail out Wall Street, and so he has—he was really behind the behind the eight ball there. And and uh, I think, it's, it's, as I say, the Fed normally uh, turns toward ease even before the peak in business. Now you yeah. never know where the peak in business is until National Bureau of Economic Research says so, and that's a year later. <laughs> and, and that's you know, and and when you find out, it's about as handy as a pocket in your underwear because it's three or four quarters later. Right. But the <laughs> right. point is. Uh, the Fed, when they see that they've done the dirty deed and precipitate a recession, they ease off. This time, I think they're going to continue. Uh, we, and we probably are already in the recession, but I yep. think they're going to continue. And, and they really want to see confirmation that inflation is down and that their credibility is reestablished. And, and, you know, I, I think there's still a lot of, of, of uh, questioning as well the Fed and, the, and, the, and uh, whether Powell and the Fed have teeth. Right. So, I mean, we're speaking with Gary Schilling, President of uh, A. Gary Schilling and Company. Gary, I mean, the, how about the consumer? It seems like the consumer's still hanging in there, buying stuff, going on trips. Uh, you know, it doesn't feel like the consumer's really well, in pain. You know, maybe I, it's just I, a, I did uh, a Bloomberg column a few weeks ago pointing out that it's the real economy okay. that's declining. The nominal economy isn't. Well, when you get 8.3 right. year-over-year inflation, you know, if if, if uh, that 
that, that's on top. That's the, that's the veil of inflation. And this is what we had in the late 60s and 1970s. Uh, you know, I can remember back then uh, the, uh, the uh, Dow Jones Industrials was skirting back and forth a, a, around 1,000 for, uh, for 10 wow. years. And now it's 20. In times. real terms, in real terms, it declined, it declined 78%. Wow. Yeah. And it's the same thing here. And I think, I think the media is, and that's why I wrote that column, that Bloomberg column, because I think the media is very uh, off base and not realizing that the real economy is, real, real retail sales are down, real hourly wages are down. Yep. Uh, and, 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 you know, the consumer is, is, is really retrenching and, and the consumer doesn't have a lot of spending power left. Well, maybe, maybe that's what the, is driving the Fed here. Got to get that inflation down. Well, oh yeah, oh yeah. yeah, oh yeah. They've got the bit, they've gotten their bit in the teeth. But you know, you look at the consumer, and they they've spent a lot of that of that uh, uh, money they got yep. Yep. from uh, pandemic uh, stimulus. And where else? Where what else they got? Housing. House prices are declining. Right. Stocks. Stocks are collapsing. So people really don't have the money. Now, obviously, the guys on the top are okay, but the rest are are, are in trouble and. So we're going, to, we're going to see further declines in real spending in all likelihood. No more money, but we got honey. When's the next batch coming out? Well, Gary is also the, probably the most famous apiarist on Wall Street. Is that right? Okay. Yeah, you keep bees in, I think, two different places, right? Yeah, well, I've got some out in Fire Island, our beach house. Most of them are in New Jersey, a couple see. locations. But i got to tell you, this is the worst year for honey I've ever had. We normally, uh, we normally take off... Uh, three or four thousand of those one pound jars that we hand around to you guys yeah and this year we had 600 wow whoa why well we'll have to, we'll have to, we'll have to say bad weather we'll have diseases to, bad i'm weather glad just... i don't try to make my living in agriculture <laughs> all right gary thank you so much for joining us gary schilling he's president of a gary schilling and company joining us live in his bloomberg interactive brokers uh studio because matt miller went and grabbed him from the television studio how good is that <laughs> The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Want to get right to our next guest, Matt Winkler. He's the editor-in-chief emeritus, founder of Bloomberg News. He's usually in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, but he's out in our San Francisco Bureau, which is a phenomenal office, by the way, right on the, the, the wharf there overlooking the Bay Bridge. Good stuff there. Who knows what kind of trouble he's getting into, Matt. I hope he's going Francisco. to Humphrey Slocum. No, uh, Hilditch. Uh, no, Humphrey Slocum. That's the ice cream place that's no. near the office. And I'm going to say, if you get a chance, stop by there and order a scoop of secret breakfast ice cream. Okay, so there's the ice cream. He needs to go to Tadich Grill. Okay. That is the oldest restaurant in San Francisco. It is awesome. And I think it's right up Matt's alley. Matt, you've got a great column out today uh, about Israel. Ignore Israel politics. Its economy is thriving. When I think Israel economy i think technology what's what's driving israel these days well you just nailed it it's great to be with you and um it is technology and and essentially what happened is during the past uh decade corporate israel if you like uh which is you know more than 600 companies was transformed 
to something much more diverse. And the diversity is really what's driving the economy. Where Israel 10 years ago was mostly, you know, if you like, pharmaceutical, Tiva is obviously the name that comes to mind, yep. and, you know, some industrial companies. Today, you're talking about... Um, you know, dozens of companies with more than a billion dollars of capitalization, market capitalization, and they're in tech, and it's food tech, and it's every other kind of water tech, it's climate change, it's sustainability. Um, everywhere you look, uh, there's innovation, and that really mm. has transformed the economy, as you said. Yeah, I think, that, you know, to me, innovation is the key. I um, consistently see companies that aren't afraid to take risk coming out of Israel. Lately, there have been a spate of documentaries as well on cannabis research and hallucinogenics, and uh, it seems that they lead the world in research there. Uh, I'm not just saying that because those things sound fun, but because they don't have this kind of puritanical um, sort of regulatory system that we have in, in, in the West. What do, what do you think allows them to get out there and do this kind of innovation? I think there are two things. One is, as you just said, it's there is a lack of fear of failure. There just is no fear of failure in Israel. Hmm. People just do what they think um, has potential, and they don't worry about whether it's going to fail or not. The second thing is probably um, they're often creating, if you like, solutions for problems that have yet to be defined, if that sounds crazy, uh, that is very much a characteristic. And an example of that is, if you go back to 1999, um, when Mobileye um, really came about, um, and Mobileye today is, you know, 70% of the auto market. Cars everywhere around the world are using the Mobileye equipment for driver assistance. And um, you can't miss a mobile eye product right. uh, really in any vehicle um, anywhere. And so um, at the time, that invention, if you like, was dismissed um, and people were very skeptical. And so it's a good example of, you know, Israel doing things really way ahead of where the world is at the moment. And Matt, you've, as always, you've got some great charts and some great data in your columns. I'm looking at one here just amazing. I never even thought about it. But among the 31 currencies oh, yeah. globally that trade against the dollar actively, over the last 10 years, only one has outperformed the U.S. dollar, and that's Israeli shekel. That tells you that the market really believes in this Israel story. Yeah, that's really, uh, if you like, the leading indicator and a very consistent one. Um, you know, if, if I told you 10 years ago that the shekel would be the top performing currency in the world. Um, the, the only. Dollar, yeah. When the dollar is uh, as robust as it is, um, you know, that that just would have been dismissed uh, out of hand. And yet, um, as you say, it underlies really what's going on in the economy. Um, and most people are really not paying attention to it because we've got these perennial headlines about, you know, West Bank clashes, missiles from Hamas and Gaza, and of course, a nuclear showdown with Iran. And, you know, they're far too often, you know, the stories that we read and listen and watch. And yet, um, the real story is the innovation and the strength of the Israeli economy and how stable it is. I'm curious also about the academic institutions there, because 
you know, research is often rooted in universities. You mm -hmm. touch on Hebrew University, but I see uh, tons of researchers. It's almost like they have a whole system of Stanford's there. Yeah, um, you know, I didn't mention this, but um, it's well known. You know, everyone in Israel who is, um, you know, 18 or so goes into um, the armed uh, forces, and it's part of their uh, requirement, nat national service. And, you know, when they come out, they then go into university. But there already is a, if you like, a focus and a maturity level uh, that you find in Israeli universities. And it's not, you know, anyone in particular. It's all of them. And out of that comes the innovation that we're talking about. Yeah. yeah. And Matt, I, I just wonder, you, you cited some of the geopolitical risks of investing in Israel, but it, they seem to attract the investment dollars despite those risks. Right. There isn't a company that you know about that doesn't have R&D uh, in Israel, you know, whether it's Alphabet, whether it's Apple, whether it's Microsoft, you know, there's, there isn't a company that is in technology that mm. doesn't have uh, something significant as a presence in Israel. And that's because of the engineering that's, that's vested there. And, yep. uh, you know, that's probably an asset that just continues to grow. All right. Good stuff. As always, uh, appreciate getting the time from Matt Winkler, editor-in-chief emeritus and founder of Bloomberg News, uh, calling in from our studios in San Francisco. I will, I, I will again say uh, definitely get some ice cream, Matt. Humphrey Slocum. It's right Got next it. to the office, and they have the my favorite flavor is called Secret Breakfast. Delicious. Right. I think I'll cocktails, take that under advisement. Cocktails at Tadich Grill later in the day. Matt Winkler, thank you so much. We appreciate it. I want to talk about the airline uh, business. Um, you know, people definitely were back on the flights, uh, on the planes this summer in a big way. Every people traveling everywhere, uh, taking advantage of the strong dollar, heading over to Europe and other parts of the world. Uh, the question, though, is you know how profitable are these airlines going to be in this new world? Uh, George Ferguson covers airlines, aerospace for Bloomberg Intelligence, and one of the airlines that I have not flown because I am, you know, I'm an, a Newark person, and Newark's all about. United Airlines is Frontier Airlines. George, talk to us about Frontier Airlines. What are your thoughts here? So uh, with the merger of JetBlue and Spirit, they'll be the only ultra-low-cost carrier um, in the U.S. Uh, right now, I'm sure another one will rise uh, you know, to, to compete with them. Um, they, they lease a lot of their fleet, which means that um, it, it's great for growth, right? There's no cash out when you take airplanes. You can expand pretty quickly. The challenge is in a downturn when you want to lay off capacity, it's really hard because you got to pay rental payments and everything you got out on the, you know, on the tarmac. Uh, it's not like you have airplanes you own out there that you can park and not have to pay anything against it. So it gets hard to knock down capacity, which means they're typically an adder of capacity, you know, or, or maintaining capacity, again, through ups and downs. Uh, and that could be very dilutive on fares uh, in soft periods. And so I, that may be a challenge for them as we as we go into economic slowdown uh, as we get into the, uh, you know, now through the end of the year, beginning of the, of the year. But they um, do they you know, the, the, the benefit of leasing, at least I know from cars, is that you always have the newest and best and most fuel efficient thing. Is that the case with their fleet as well? Yeah, a lot of what they're leasing is the is the newest uh, 
airplanes, which are most most fuel efficient, uh, for sure. Uh, yeah, so I mean, it, it is it's absolutely an advantage. Again, it's it's one of those things where you can expand faster because there's no cash out. You definitely have most fuel efficient uh, equipment, but if you get to a downturn and you got to park airplanes, it gets very painful. Oh, are we coming to a downturn? I don't know. You tell me. It looks <laughs> like the ten-year Treasury is telling me that. Uh, and, and inflation tell me Fed wants to keep raising rates, and that's got to slow things down. So I think they're, they're so broad, stepping back, uh, George, on the airline business. What are the companies telling you about kind of their demand? Again, they had a, a presumably from a, a traffic perspective a, a strong summer. What do they think about the next six to, or three to six months, maybe? Yeah. So I mean, you know, we're getting ready to go into earnings season here. We'll get Delta tomorrow. Um, but we had American uh, sort of pre-announced most of their results earlier this week, and what you know what I thought interesting one they're they're all touting the fact that they're beating um, 2019 levels of revenue. They are American beat Q3 2019. Uh, the revenue was up uh, 14, 15 percent against that, but costs are up too, and so profitability still lags 2019. So was it a strong summer from the volume of uh, you know flyers they carried? Absolutely, that was good. Costs are costs are higher, right? And that's why revenues are higher. Fuel, right, up 70, 80 percent depends on what point in the in the quarter you wanted to measure it. Uh, and labor, right? There's a lot of labor inflation out there. The airlines aren't immune to that. Uh, we kind of dial in five to ten percent kind of labor inflation, and that means that. They're, again, still lagging their 2019 levels of profitability. I mean, I think if they're carrying close to 2019 levels of passengers, they ought to be able to find a way to get back to that profitability level. They haven't yet. They've got to drive more efficiency into their businesses. When you, look at, when you look across the sector, um, who's got the biggest, who's the best positioned in America? You know, so I think that uh, as we go into the winter here and the business uh, travel recovery continues, I think the airlines focused on some of those more premium travelers, business travelers, high-end leisure. I think they're better situated, right? And so American Delta, United, right? They're going to continue to gain from more overseas travel, from more business travel. And I think the more that you're catering to leisure, especially low-end leisure, which I think is getting pinched the most by inflation, the more challenging it's going to get. And those airlines like Frontier and Spirit will be putting all their capacity in the marketplace instead of cutting some of it short. And that means it's going to get very competitive at the bottom end of the market. So where are we, George, in terms of capacity? Uh, in, you know, are, are there enough planes? Are there enough pilots? Are there enough baggage handlers? Where are we, again, as an industry capacity versus pre-pandemic? You know, so they, uh, you know, the airlines kind of started the summer out trying to fly about 2019 levels of capacity, maybe a couple percent short. Now we're 10 to 15 percent below 2019 levels for lots of the carriers. You know, the, the ultra low cost are, they're above, but they're, they've been growing throughout the pandemic. Um, and so that, that's relaxed things a, a bit on, on the marketplace. I think there are plenty of airplanes. I'm just looking at Boeing's report for deliveries this month. They delivered 14 airplanes into, into Southwest in the last month. Um, they've got more parked in the tarmac out there if you need some. So I, I don't think there's a shortage of airplanes. Pilots are a bit of a challenge, but again, I think at these lower capacity levels, they shouldn't be too bad, but they're a bit of a challenge and everybody's got a problem with labor. Uh, but again, I hear there's less hiccups right now. So I think operations have stabilized a bit and some of that, some of that stuff is a little more stabilized. 
maybe I'll go to pilot school, Matt, and you know, get my pilot's license. I'm going to fly some of these big birds. I think it's it's difficult. Uh, I mean, it's probably fun to get your pilot's license, but then to fly some of the big planes. That might I might be past my practice for expired a while. date. All right, those yeah. are the most fun. The those are the most fun, exactly. All right, George Ferguson. He covers airlines, aerospace for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's been doing it for decades. Before he was a Wall Street guy, he was actually in the United States Army. Believe it or not, an intelligence officer of all things. Which uh, go figure. George Ferguson, uh, aerospace analyst. Bloomberg Intelligence. PepsiCo, they reported some better than expected numbers. I guess people still, despite inflation, despite a, a looming recession, are still drinking their Pepsi Cola, still eating their Fritos, which are my favorite snack, by the way, for those who care. Uh, Ken Shea, he does this stuff for a living. He's a senior equity analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's been covering these, you know, beverage, tobacco, cannabis stocks for decades, tons of experience. So I. Ken, should I be surprised with PepsiCo? They just reported some better than expected numbers. Business seems to be okay. Should I be surprised, or is this what these companies do kind of in and out of different cycles? Yeah, hi, Paul. Great to be with you today. Um, no, you shouldn't be surprised. You know, I, I uh, ran the numbers, and today represented PepsiCo's 20th straight EPS beat. <laughs> so this is a company yep. that has really leveraged its uh, diversity by product line, geographic reach, by channel. Wait, did they beat your estimates as well? They did. And, you, know, you know what? Next time you estimate Pepsi earnings, why don't you just add like 25%? <laughs> if they beat everybody 20 times in a row, then there's a yeah. problem. Yeah, you know, you got a point there. Um, but, you know, it speaks to the strength of its brands. I mean, these are iconic brands, as you mentioned, Paul, Frito-Lay, Cheetos, you know, Lay's yeah. Chips, Quaker Oats. And what we learned is even though their effective net pricing was up 17%, a real eye-popping number, uh, volume's only down 1%. So consumers, you know, they accept the price increases, they treat these brands as necessities, and uh, it's, it, it's, no, it's no surprise that the shares are up and other consumer uh, staple stocks are benefiting today from, uh, you know, this good news. So um, what kind of innovation or... or, or you know, other products is Pepsi out with them. Obviously, we're addicted to cola, soda, and salty snacks. What else are they doing? Well, they have something called nitro soda. I don't know if you've heard yeah. of this, but if you pour it, it comes out, you know, foamy. It doesn't, like, doesn't sound like a big deal, but for, you know, loyal uh, consumers of these products, you know, little things like that do make a difference. Gives them another reason to go down the soda aisle and try it out. Um and, uh, you know, the company's innovation, particularly uh, Lay's Chips, you know, they had uh, the campaign that's been going on for a while now about, you know, asking consumers what your favorite flavor is, and, you know, they respond, is uh, that's where the company's strength is. It's, it's willingness to stick its neck out and take some chances with different flavors, you know, different formats and things like that. And consumers love that. You know, these are fun. These are fun products. These are not, you know, necessities like, uh, you know, motor oil. <laughs> these are, uh, you know, fun. So they have to be entertaining as well as, you know, uh, consumable. So, all right, let's switch over to another beverage company here. All right. So when we talk about like these energy drinks like Red Bull and Monster, I never got into that. I'm, I don't think I'm the demo. I think it's some, some more of the younger folks. But I look at Monster Beverage Corp. It's a publicly traded company. MNST is this ticker to put into your Bloomberg terminal. 
this thing's got a $47 billion market cap. It's outperforming the market this year, like a lot of the consumer staples, down only about 6%. Talk to us about that, that segment, uh, Ken. It, it's, it's a really big segment of the beverage market. Yeah, it really is. Um, energy is a $15, $16 billion category or so. Monsters had the biggest share for a long, long time. Very quietly, you know, energy has been uh, the strongest segment within the beverage category for quite a number of years now. And that's why you're seeing companies like Coca-Cola, which owns about 20% of Monster, by the way, Ah, but particularly um, PepsiCo, you know, just bought, uh, you know, Red Bull last year. It's got a new... uh, PepsiCo bought Red Bull? No, uh, PepsiCo bought um, uh, Rockstar. I'm sorry, Rockstar. Uh, and they uh, have a deal with Celsius Holdings, which is an up-and-coming uh, sure. energy drink, taking the healthy uh, energy angle. But they've been more aggressive in the energy space because it's done so well. And uh, so Monster, though, back to your uh, question, is that they remain the leader. They have a very asset-light model, so they really leverage just that category and kind of outsource you know, distribution at Coca-Cola. They even distribution, uh, outsource a lot of their um, co-packing. And so um, it's really been a pure play on energy, and it's worked out really well for shareholders. Um, All right. So Paul and I, neither one of us really needs any of that energy stuff. I don't (laughs) even drink coffee. You drink coffee? No, but I'll have an espresso every once in a while. I mean, coffee's for closers. Anyway, (laughs) Um, I I prefer to mellow out a little bit. When are these companies going to come out with some THC-infused beverages? Well, uh, when the FDA provides better clarity on what they can do with it. You know, the USDA came out a while ago and said, yeah, you know, you can grow uh, hemp-based CBD products and so on. But the FDA quickly stepped in a few years ago and said, you know what, that's great, but when it comes to a packaged product and ingesting these products, we need to have more testing. So, you know, it's one of those gray areas, like many things in cannabis, where some states where it's state legal, um, you have uh, generally small beverage companies selling CBD infused beverages. Uh, in Canada, you have quite a bit of THC infused beverages. They're not legal in the U.S. Right. I haven't right seen now. any THC beverages here yet. Um, Which THC? That's the, the THC is the one that makes you high. Okay. And CBD is the one that I well, guess the, like heals there are, you. There are some THC beverages in the U.S., but again, it, it, it's state by state. These are small producers. You don't have the big guys in there yet. I get I guess the bottom line, Ken, is are we going to get the Safe Banking Act passed? This is what everybody's waiting for, some real federal regulation so that these companies, which have, you know, tremendous growth and revenue streams, can bank. Well, you know, it, it's, it's hard to predict. You know, um, you know uh, our track record of predicting safe banking <laughs> hasn't been, uh, you know, spot on like everybody else's. You know, it, like, like many things with cannabis, it's been much delayed. And um, I think hope is the key word with cannabis. We know that people like to consume these products. We know it's legal in many states. But until we get that federal legalization or at least a loosening of laws uh, in a more minor way, like safe banking or whatever, um, you're going to get a lot of skepticism out there. These companies have a tough time growing when they're fighting things like uh, IRS 280E, which prevents them from taking normal business business expenses. But they have a it's tiny to- valuation. Like, it's I haven't seen anything else like it. They're trading for two times sales. 
Yeah, well, you know, because they're by and large unprofitable. They're profitable on the EBITDA line, they would point out, but because of 280E and their inability to shield themselves from, from federal taxes, uh, a lot of them are unprofitable. Yep. And there's, like I said, there's limited growth and there's a lot of limitations of what they can do. They can't, you know, yep. take products across state bounds, which means they, uh, state borders, which means you can't have the economies of scale right. that a typical you know, a consumer product goods mm-hmm. company can have. All right, so we can, I guess, you know, I guess the point now is just kind of, you know, for this is just continue to wait for federal legislation. Ken Shea, Senior Equity Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, walking us through all things consumer products, including the cannabis business. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.